Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and I have a return guest today, George Crisides. George, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks. And uh, thanks for allowing me, uh, I think it's a third attempt now at yes. um, yeah, having a conversation with you. So uh, that should be good. Yeah. Let me just read a little bit of the bio. Folks can see this in the program notes with the podcast. George is honorary research fellow at York St. John's University in the UK and was formerly head of religious studies at the University of Wolverhampton, also in the UK. And like uh, George mentioned, this is his third visit back. Previously, we discussed his work on Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, we also discussed the last time he was here, uh, he was co-editor of a wonderful book on contested concepts in the study of religion, which got a lot of interest uh, from some of my academic colleagues. But today, we're going to discuss another book that he's uh, a new book uh, that he is co-editor with Dan cohn Sherbach. And it's titled The COVID Pandemic and the World Religions. And it's a fascinating book. I had the privilege of, of uh, taking a look at it prior to publication. And, and the publisher was foolish enough to accept uh, an endorsement blurb for me on the back. So uh, it's uh, all good stuff. So thanks for coming on and talking about this book. How did the idea for the book come about? Yeah, well, I should say thanks for uh, doing the endorsement of it. And, uh, you know, hope... Uh... Hope you're pleased with the result. Oh, yes. uh, the idea from for the book um, actually it came from Dan rather than me. Uh, okay. He felt that um, with the pandemic there ought to be some kind of religious response, and um, Dan has got a lot of contacts with um, religious communities, so um, that was good. He managed to get, um, in fact, most of the people that contributed, Dan had commissioned. Um, and I uh, think I pulled my weight. I probably did a bit more on the editing. Um, so, uh, yeah, we felt that uh, there had been very little serious reflection on the pandemic, mainly because it was new. It had only been on the go for about 18 months or two years. I can't remember exactly when we started. But um, the books that had come out when we had a look at what was already out there, they were mainly kind of devotional books, like you know, prayers for the pandemic and things like that. And I mean, that's fine. We've uh, no quarrel with that. It's important that uh, people should respond in a religious way to um, events like that. But we also wanted some rather more serious reflection. So part of the brief that people were given was, it's not a devotional book that we're doing. It's not a how-to book. Um, it's more um, a, a set of questions about the pandemic that we'd um, like um, contributors to address. So that was uh, the thinking behind the book. No, of of course there have been pandemics throughout human history, and and as long as human beings have been religious, they've been tapping into their religious traditions as an aid to grapple with these things. Did you have a sense when you were reading from contributors how the COVID response might have been similar or different historically? 
Well, Christopher Lewis that did the uh, opening chapter, um, I think, did an excellent job of kind of tracing the kind of history of pandemics and religious responses to them. Um, I think the COVID one has been different in a number of ways. Um, it's been absolutely worldwide, uh, unlike uh, pandemics like the Black Death, which were essentially European Um Knowledge has moved on. Uh, I mean, in the past, uh, pandemics have been attributed to bad air or uh, if you're wanting a religious explanation, it was thought that it was uh, some kind of punishment from God um, or uh, there was some kind of um, human sin that was behind it um, or that the gods for some reason were angry with uh, with humans and there was a belief in some circles that it was magic that was the solution. Um, we still get a bit of that, I think. Um, we still get um, the very conservative religious view that uh, either denies that there's a pandemic at all or thinks that it could be um, uh, cured by prayer or uh, by devotion. And actually, that is one group of people we decided not to include in the book. Uh, the people that um, simply said the solution is a religious one, that there's no cause for worry about the pandemic. Because um, I think I mentioned in my chapter people like Kenneth Copeland that said you can uh, just uh, blow the plague away. And right. uh, you know, he blew to his audience and said, that's uh, the Holy Spirit chasing all these demons uh, out of here. It didn't seem to work out. Fine. Well, it didn't work out. It's uh, interesting that um, uh, the people that uh, deny that uh, there is kind of serious scientific work to be done on it, uh, they uh, seem to ignore the fact that actually yeah, the people that uh, refused vaccination, including some pastors, uh, actually died of the pandemic. So uh, there's uh, what we call cognitive dissonance in academic circles as a kind of mismatch between what they say will happen, namely, you'll be all right, God will protect you, Psalm 91 and all that. Um, and then, on the other hand, what is actually happening? I mean, God doesn't seem to protect people from the, the plague, or at least not everyone, and certainly not the people that don't go for the vaccine. Yeah, well, who who knows? You might be able to do a follow-up volume with the continuing debate now post-COVID about vaccinations and what worked and what didn't work and all the finger-pointing, how religions grapple with the post-COVID reflection might be an interesting kind of topic there, but but who knows? Uh, what were the uh, the questions that you posed to contributors as you approached them and said, we'd like you to contribute to the volume? This is not a, a religious you know, you're not you're not giving an apologetic from within your religious tradition as to why it's there or any of that or how to deal with it. What did you want them to address? Well, we suggested five questions. And if I can do a share screen. Yes. Hopefully I can put them up here because it's probably more helpful if you can actually uh, see them. Um, is that showing properly now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. OK, so. Uh, these five questions that we've got, um, it wasn't kind of tablets of stone. Uh, these were the sort of questions that um, we wanted people to address, not necessarily all five, but um, whatever was most important to them. Dan was particularly keen on having some theology in it um, about um, 
how uh, your faith explains uh, events like that. Um, but I think uh, among them, the contributors addressed all five of these questions one way or another, not necessarily all in the one chapter, but um, the idea was that they might consider why do events like that happen at all? Why does God allow it? Um, how does it affect religious practices? Because religion is very much a social thing. So if governments are saying you mustn't socialize, you've got to isolate, um, how does that work? Um, there's a, a lot of fear about touching things because the COVID virus could be on them. But uh, particularly in my own tradition, which is Christianity, uh, you're handling things like the bread and wine at the Eucharist. You're coming together, you're meeting um there's a lot of physical contact. Um, how do you baptize people if uh, you're uh, not allowed to come into contact with them? Um, how do you bury people? Because the uh, dead are not going to bury themselves. Um, there are very practical problems. Um, that's the, the Christian faith. I mean, obviously, there are counterparts in other religions. Like if you're a Hindu, you'll go to the temple and you'll touch the murtis, you'll bring prasad. Um, that's, again, another possible uh, risk of infection. So that kind of brought us on to question three. Uh, what changes has it necessitated? So um, people had to kind of behave differently, um, either not perform their religious rites or else do them in a different way. And that raised the question of how much could be done in virtual reality. Uh, so... Um, Again, that brings us on to question four. What differences might we expect? Because um, a lot of us kind of went virtual or semi-virtual. And uh, we've seen benefits of that. It's, it's made a difference to it. And then finally, what have we learned from it? Uh, a kind of obvious wrap-up question to ask people. So that kind of briefly was the, the five things that uh, we were after in the book. And uh, as I say, some people went through the five, some picked out one or two. And um, uh, among us all, we got um, a response to uh, these five questions, I think. What kinds of uh, religious traditions are represented in the book? Uh, well, as I said, Dan has uh, a lot of contacts with religious communities. Um, we decided, obviously, to do what we sometimes call the famous five in the study of religion, um, namely uh, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam and Judaism. Um, now, uh, I was particularly keen that we shouldn't talk about world religions because you, you often get world religions equals the famous five plus maybe Sikhism. You get a kind of sacred six in some textbooks. Um, and then some people would want to include uh, the, the Baha'i. Um, so uh, what, what I wanted to do was to say, well, let's talk about the world's religions with an apostrophe S, not world religions, because that's a problematic term. Right. So we agreed on that. Um, but also, interestingly, um, we didn't just want to privilege um, these six or seven religions. Um, Dan had contacts with people in the Jain community, um, the Zoroastrian community, um, 
And interestingly, uh, Native African traditions, which you, you don't uh, hear a lot about. So that's a distinctive feature of the book. And then uh, Dan wanted to add the Unitarians. And um, it was my idea to include uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists. Um, as you said at the beginning, Jehovah's Witnesses are my particular line of interest. Um, but numerically, uh, there are about as many Jehovah's Witnesses as there are Jews, for instance. So um, why not include them? But also, I think the interesting thing about JWs and Christian scientists is that um, both of them uh, typically have got um, uh, problems about uh, conventional medical treatment. Uh, I mean, historically, Christian scientists get the reputation for saying, well, it's all in the mind, focus on God, and that's the cure. So um, a number of uh, Christian scientists uh, I've been in contact with were uh, willing to uh, write chapters. So we included them, and their task was to explain what the Christian science position now is on things like vaccination and um, mind cure and uh, the like. Jehovah's Witnesses... I think they still get the reputation for being anti-vaccination. Um, that's not true. Actually, both JWs and Christian scientists put on their website that we're not being prescriptive, but we would strongly recommend that you get vaccinated. Um, there was a period in JW history where they were very suspicious of um, conventional medicine and questioned uh, the theory that diseases were caused by germs. Um, round about well, the end of the 1930s, the, that position changed and they were much more amenable to scientific ideas um, and certainly to vaccination. So I thought it would be a good idea to let them speak to uh, their own position on um, the pandemic. One thing that... Um, uh, occurred to me about the Jehovah's Witnesses was that um, when you look at their uh, past material about pandemics, there was an article that appeared in Awake magazine. In fact, it was uh, the front cover that uh, said, and that was back in 2012, uh, it said the next pandemic when, and there was a picture of a ward with victims of Spanish flu. And uh, Interestingly, they never said when the pandemic occurred, we've told you so, see how good we are at prophecy, because they, they get the reputation for being failed prophets, mm. uh, setting dates that don't materialize. And um, well, that's another story. I think that's a bit unfair when people say that to them. But here was an opportunity for them to say, look, actually, we're successful prophets. But they never said that. Um, and in fact, neither of the two contributors on the JW chapters made that point. Hmm. So, uh, you know, they weren't anxious to uh, make capital out of it. Uh, they simply defined what their own position was and how they had coped with the, the, the virus and um, uh, what had happened and how things had changed. Uh, can you just to give... Uh viewers and listeners an idea of what's in store hopefully they'll pick up a copy of the book because like i said at the beginning I, I found it fascinating can you give a few examples of some of the responses from contributors maybe something that that stood out for you 
Yeah, I think the one chapter that stood out, um, I think it's the best chapter in the book. Maybe it's invidious to make comparisons, <laughs> but um, the chapter on Sikhism by um, uh, Nikki Gunanda Singh. Now, that's exceptionally well written. Uh, she's an academic and um, therefore her stuff is very respectable. But um, what she mentioned, and I hadn't known about it until I uh, came across uh, Nikki and um, uh, her chapter was that um, as we all, well, as some of us know, one of the key things about Sikhism is um, what they call sewa, service, service to the community. And they do that, among other things, through their langar, through their kitchen, uh, where they distribute food to anyone that uh, wants to come. Anyone can go to uh, the Sikh langar and get food. And of course, that was an issue in the, the pandemic. Um, can you continue to do that when um, there's uh, a pandemic on and risk of infection? But one of the things that Nikki said was that um, not only did they have a langar that served food, a number of good varas had oxygen langars because we particularly in countries like India, uh, because it's a respiratory illness, people were short of breath. People didn't just need food. They needed oxygen. And so uh, a number of good varas actually had oxygen cylinders uh, where people could come and they could get the oxygen that they needed. And I thought that was really interesting, not only because I hadn't known about it, but um, because um, it carries a kind of model with it, I think, that um, it's important to help people in the right way, that uh, it's not enough just to kind of give money or to offer to go um, shopping for people. We uh, all ought to be thinking, what do people really need? And I think Nikki brought that out very well in a very interesting way in that particular chapter. I think it's that is especially interesting because I think people in different religious traditions are used to responding to what we call natural disasters. Uh, all religious groups do that, you know. Um, but in terms of a, a pandemic, that was something that uh, that they had seen. So they were they were responding in the moment to something unique. So I think that was. That was an interesting kind of response that you point to there. In, in terms of production, I, I know the book came out this year, but books take a while um, to get done from concept to writing to editing to publishing. When in relation to the, the pandemic, were the authors writing these chapters and wrestling with the issues? Was it the tail end? Were we still in the pandemic or how did that play out? Well, I suppose we are we are still in the pandemic. There's still people catching COVID. Right, um, right. But yes, it was kind of um, when it was past its peak. Uh, I had a feeling you were going to ask me this, and I was <laughs> trying to th to think about it because people always ask things like, "How long does it take you to write a book?" Right. And there's not always a clear answer to that. I think um, probably it was. Um, let me think. Uh, it was after I had finished the Jehovah's Witness book, so uh, that would be 2021, probably towards the end. Um, and I mean, people did write their chapters very fast because we were conscious that um, people would fairly soon um, have their interest tailing off on the topic. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was uh, when the uh, pandemic was kind of on the wane and then people did get to work fairly fast and produce the material. As you, uh, I always learn things when I am editing a book, uh, not just 
about how to be a better editor and, and all this, but uh, I always have some takeaways and, and insights. What kinds of general takeaways are there in terms of how human beings turn to their diverse religious traditions to respond to these kinds of challenges? Well, I think the, um, the issue was how we could use virtual reality because, I mean, that was the obvious thing to do given that we're uh, technologically more savvy than we were. Um, as I said in the book, uh, in my final chapter, when the pandemic started, um, we were in the middle of a Lent group in Litchfield Cathedral. It was supposed to last, it was either five or six weeks, um, and the discussion group that met in the evening. And then we were told we weren't to meet anymore. Uh, these were the instructions that uh, the Church of England had um, uh, sent down. So I said to people, uh, we could continue this group, you know, if we all went on Zoom or on Skype. And everyone said, oh, we don't know how to do that. Well, of course, that's a big change now because almost everyone knows how to use Zoom or Teams or Skype. Um, that was the kind of solution. Um, we didn't go down that road that particular Lent, but the following year, uh, we were all able to do it, no problems. Now, um, going on uh, going on virtual reality, of course, that uh, raised other issues. Like, um, might there be benefits from it? You know, because uh, it kind of seemed like a kind of poor relation. We can't meet in person, so let's meet on um, a TV screen. Uh, well, actually, uh, at Litchfield Cathedral now, uh, it's common practice at every major service uh, for cameras to be around the place and uh, for people to um, uh, view what's happening. And that's a particular benefit, obviously, to people that can't come because they're unwell or they're, they're housebound. Um, or uh, if you happen to be working at uh, 10.30 on a Sunday morning, you can go back and um, uh, see the service again. And um, I mean, sometimes if there are children screaming in the background and you miss parts of the sermon, <laughs> you can go back yourself and uh, hear what you've missed. And that's actually very useful. There have been one or two people that said, well, actually, we prefer uh, virtual reality and um, it's more convenient. Also, uh, there was the question, how do you receive the sacrament uh, if you uh, can't be physically present? So one thing that happened was that uh, people kind of looked into the past history of the Christian faith and um, discovered that uh, in the... I think it was the 1559 Book of Common Prayer that there was a provision for people that um, couldn't physically receive the sacrament. The priest could go to them and then uh, there was a kind of formula uh, where uh, the priest said, since you cannot now receive the sacrament physically, uh, you may do so spiritually. So uh, the practice of spiritual communion, that prayer is always recited now at a morning service for the benefit of those who are watching from home. So um, we've made a number of changes, um, changes uh, probably for the better. Jehovah's Witnesses said, um, 
if you'll allow me to kind of uh, yes, continue yes. just a bit. Yeah, and Jehovah's Witnesses said, uh, well, actually, in the past, we made provision for people that can't attend um, events like the annual memorial service. They could have a telephone link and um, they, they could listen in on their telephones. Now, uh, that changed when they did the uh, memorials online because uh, it wasn't enough just to do it by telephone. Uh, they actually had an adapted version that you could be present um, on screen. And uh, people then who were housebound not only heard what was happening, but um, could uh, see it as well. And they actually had an image of the, the bread and the wine that passed by your screen so that um, uh, you could... Uh, you could actually receive the emblems, as they call them, in that sort of way. So I think of the number of benefits that we've uh, accrued through um, the uh, the pandemic. It's not all been bad. Uh, and as I look at it, it seems to me that it, it, it uh, of course, perhaps sped up some negative trends that were happening, uh, such as in uh, American Christianity with the decline in, in attendance for worship services and the thought was folks would kind of come back afterwards and that doesn't really seem to have happened. Um, do you, did you have a feel from contributors how, if, if not attendance and at least active participation in their traditions continue to be affected by post-COVID kinds of things? Yeah, well, it raises the question of what is active participation? Because, yes. uh, I mean, virtual participation can be active right. but uh, i think the honest answer is we don't know uh people will uh, take stock of how many people uh, switched on their uh, their computer screens um that you can only measure computer screens you can't measure how many people are actually watching the same screen right. so uh, there are statistical problems about this um my own impression is that most people are back now. Uh, there are still one or two people that are uh, wary about uh, being in uh, public places where there's close proximity to uh, other people. But uh, certainly in the circles I move in, um, I think maybe not exactly back to normal, but uh, mm -hmm. there's uh, as much confidence as there was before the pandemic. We're also, I think, more conscious of uh, hygienic precautions. You know, people come armed with the sanitizers and there are still one or two people that wear masks when they come into church. Yes, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> is, there, is there anything else that uh, you would like uh, folks to take away from this great book? Yeah, well, you were, you said you were going to ask me about the, the takeaway. So I wrote yeah. the last chapter of the book, which was a kind of summing up. So I guess I'm the kind of takeaway delivery man, as it were. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, one of the questions I addressed was, what have we learned from the mm -hmm. pandemic? And um, I think one of the questions that interested me was, uh, to what extent does one talk about a pandemic as being an act of God? I mean, we often use that expression. But um, in fact, as one of the Jane contributors pointed out, um, it wasn't uh, an act of God uh, or of the supernatural. Uh, whatever way you look at the pandemic, it had a human cause. 
So, uh, and being a Jain, he was pointing out that um, it might have been meat eating that was uh, the origin of the pandemic. Uh, could have been poor hygienic conditions in the meat market at Wuhan. Um, the other explanation, as we know, is that um, it wasn't that. It was um, carelessness in a laboratory because uh, uh, Wuhan is one place that has a laboratory that is um, investigating um, viruses and it could easily have leaked out. But either way, it was humans that were responsible. And um, I think that raises the question of um, how much evil and suffering in the world is due to uh, humanity and how much is due to natural causes or if you're a religious believer, divine causes. And I think we're beginning to see that the distinction between so-called acts of God and uh, acts of humans um, is a very blurred one. Because as I pointed out, uh, I mean, no sooner had uh, people been allowed to travel abroad uh, than people were rushing away to have foreign holidays in the sun which I think was a really stupid thing for them to do, but um, obviously that's, that's what they wanted. But, um, I mean, not only is that running the risk of catching the virus, but um, it's not ecologically friendly. So, I mean, are we really learning the lesson that um, things like global warming are due to... Um, are due to uh, human causes because we're selfish and want to travel by air rather than uh, just travel locally or uh, do things online. Uh, I mean, to what extent are we really learning that um, humans cause an awful lot of suffering in the world? And um, if one thinks about uh, the situation between Russia and Ukraine, for example, uh, a lot of needless human suffering there, a lot of expenditure, as I point out, on um, armaments and um, uh, the military. Uh, the question I raise is, supposing uh, we were to say, well, we're not going to spend money on that. No one's going to spend money on that. We're going to put it into education, medical research, uh, humanitarian uh, efforts. Could we eliminate... Well, we could certainly eliminate a lot of the evil in the world and suffering. Um, don't know whether we could remove it all. That would be an interesting question, but it would be worth giving it a try. And unfortunately, we don't seem to be prepared to do that. Um, we're still traveling by air. We're still taking part in wars. Um, to what extent are we learning? And uh, I mean, that would be the message I would want to put across. Um, that's something we ought to be uh, learning from the COVID pandemic. Well, there are uh, a plethora of lessons and uh, it, it's just fascinating to read the contributors and, and look at, it's just a reminder of how we all see things so very differently and how we tap into our religious traditions to view the world and respond to everything that happens around us, including things like the COVID pandemic. So it, it's a great book. George, thank you for coming back uh, for a third time and, and sharing your expertise in your work. Well, thanks very much for having me, John. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, uh, I hope the book will interest people. Yes, uh, folks can look in the uh, program notes for not only uh, 
a description and link to uh, George and his uh, academic work, but also the, the book title itself. You can click on that link and uh, please pick up a copy. It's wonderful. George, I look forward to you coming back, uh, hopefully on the next book or the next project. Yeah, well, there is one uh, book still to come out. It's a very short book. It's about fieldwork on new religious movements. Oh, very good. And yeah, what, so when is that expected out? It's by Cambridge University Press that's bringing it out. It's part of a series of very short books. It's only 30,000 words. Um, this one's about, I don't know, it's 80 or 90,000. So um, the, 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 the short books, and uh, I hope it will be of interest. It, uh, it gives some account of um, things that happen in fieldwork, some of the issues it raises, and some of the issues that I've encountered in um, uh, exploring new religious movements. Well, it sounds fascinating. Uh, if I had the money, I'd buy a copy and make it available for all evangelical counter-cult apologists to perhaps give them a different perspective on new religious movements. But there will, be, there will be a short period where Cambridge University Press um, release it for free. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they, they tend to do that with every book in the series. So, uh, you know, watch out for their uh, notifications. And uh, I'll certainly pass it your way when um, it's available. Well, I appreciate that. That would be wonderful. Again, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, to keeping tabs on your work until uh, our next conversation. Well, thanks a lot, John. And hope we'll talk again.